0: I'd like to thank the English faculty in Wadham College for their hospitality, a word we will be using from time to time, this afternoon, no doubt. And I'd like to thank Martin Hegland for coming a great deal further than I have to be here today. At a Strathclyde University conference in 1986, Derrida brought a questioner up short with the following comment. I wish I could do his accent, Mm -hmm. which I remember so well, but I won't try it. I've never said nor thought that the metaphysics of presence was an evil. I'm inclined to think exactly the contrary, that it's good. There is no good outside the metaphysics of presence. In the audience was Jonathan Culler, who, sensing the consternation among among many members of that audience who had heard that deconstruction was an attack on the metaphysics of presence, whatever that might be, asked Derrida to expand on his remark and to explain what drives the impetus to deconstruct. He did so in part as follows. I have to deal with necessity itself. It is something or someone, some X, which compels me to admit that my desire for good, for presence, my own metaphysics of presence, not only cannot be accomplished, meets its limit, but should not be accomplished because the accomplishment or the fulfillment of this desire for presence would be death itself. The good, the absolute good, would be identical with death. Necessity is the drive or the counter drive. It's a drive which bars the fundamental drive towards presence, pleasure, fullness, plenitude, etc. The dream beyond necessity is the plenitude which wouldn't be death. This combination of dream and necessity explains the indefatigable drive for deconstruction. I'll just read those two last sentences again because I think they are... Well, I will be coming back to them uh, from time to time. The dream beyond necessity is the plenitude which wouldn't be death. This combination of dream and necessity explains the indefatigable drive for deconstruction. Now, this response probably didn't reduce the perplexity of the puzzled members of the audience, but it did set out very clearly an axis that remained central to Derrida's thinking throughout his career. In his important and hard-hitting book, Radical Atheism, Martin Hegland lucidly delineates the argument by means of which Derrida problematizes the desire for plenitude in its various guises and on the strength of this clarity of insight, offers trenchant critiques of a number of interpretations of Derridean thought that simplify or distort it. He does ample justice to what Derrida, in the comment I've just quoted, calls necessity, though I shall argue that he doesn't fully account for what Derrida calls the dream beyond necessity. Martin Sence sets out with admirable clarity the reasoning that leads Derrida from his account of time to the law of auto-immunity, which ties possibility to impossibility, success to failure. Briefly, if there can be no such thing as an indivisible now, since the progression to the following now must already be implicit in what is thus a necessarily divided present, time can be seen to possess a trace structure, what Derrida calls a trace structure. The temporal continuity between past, present, and future is achieved through a remaining It can't be purely in the dimension of time, but must involve space, since only something spatial can last, while space is temporalized as a trace of the past left for the future. This becoming space of time and becoming time of space means that exposure to the future and therefore to potential erasure as much as to potential fulfillment is constitutive of time. None of this is entirely new, though its implications are very often overlooked, and Martin goes on to show, I think in a sharper light even than Derrida ever was able to do or elected to do, how it provides the basis for Derrida's treatment of the most far-reaching topics, starting or ending with life itself. Hence the subtitle of Martin's book, Derrida and the Time of Life. (coughs) We may think we desire immortality, Martin argues, and argues that Derrida argues, but what we really yearn for is survival. We want our mortal lives to continue. Autoimmunity is the law that governs our existence. That which safeguards is also that which potentially destroys, and an entity has no way of protecting itself against possible attack by its own immune system. Immortality would, therefore, like presence or the absolute good, in Derrida's comments that I quoted earlier, be identical with death. Martin works through some of the grounds and implications of this argument in chapters on Derrida's engagement with Kant and with Husserl, and in the three chapters that follow, he mounts his critique of three fields in which a failure to grasp the essentials of the trace structure and autoimmunity have led to misunderstandings of Derrida's use of such terms as God, hospitality, and justice. The fields of theology ethics, and political theory. Now I want to apologize to Martin for this brutal summary of this wonderful complex book. Um, He'll have an opportunity to explain it better than than I have uh, in a moment. In responding to this argument, I'd like to look at one key term in Martin's and Derrida's discussion of the relation to the other, hospitality. Like autoimmunity in its various manifestations, a concern with the other which is in fact at the heart of autoimmunity, permeates Derrida's work from first to last. The deconstruction of presence, supplementarity, originary pervertibility, destinerance, spectrality, all these and and many other ideas, terms, concepts in Derrida involve the insinuation of the other into the terrain of the same, without which the same would not be what it is, which (coughs) means it's not quite what it's usually taken to be. In order for the same to be constituted as what it is, therefore, it has to be open to the other, an other which, by definition, can't be judged in advance as either constructive or destructive. Martin rightly insists throughout his book that this openness to the other is a necessary fact. Without it, nothing at all would happen. An event, briefly as an unpredictable occurrence, can come about only through exposure to an unknown unknowable other so there's a sense in which hospitality to the other is just what happens it is what Derrida called necessity when at the Strathclyde conference he referred to necessity as something I quote again which compels me to admit that my desire for presence not only cannot be accomplished but should not be accomplished he was referring to this unavoidable intrusion of otherness barring fulfillment and plenitude, but also to the positive importance of this intrusion, without which my desire would not even be partially satisfied. As Martin points out, the should in formulations like this one does not convey moral obligations. It's not that I should not accomplish my desire, but desirability itself. Fulfillment, were it possible, would not be something we would find to our liking. It would be death, remember. Hospitality to the other is therefore an inescapable and indispensable feature of life. But we might ask, isn't hospitality a slightly odd word to use in a context of mechanical necessity? It's not unusual, of course, to be invited by Derrida to reinvest familiar words with new senses or values. In fact, it's an important part of Martin's argument to alert us to the danger of responding only to the negative connotations of terms like contamination or perversion. Hospitality, however, is one of a chain of words with strong normative associations to which Derrida gave increasing attention through his career. Others include the gift, forgiveness, democracy, responsibility, invention, and justice. In every case, Derrida argued that these terms understood in their most complete sense, name an act or a state or a response that is impossible not just for empirical reasons, but essentially so, while at the same time having an indissociable relation to the more common or garden acts or states or responses to which we give these names in our daily lives. At first sight, these concepts, and concepts is a term I use for de mieux and with certain, circun- certain circumspection, may seem to operate in Derrida's writing in the same manner as one of the most fundamental terms appearing in deconstruction sites, the term presence. Presence, too, as we experience or perceive it in our lives or as it's been used in the Western philosophical tradition, names an impossibility thanks to the working of what Derrida calls difference and many other things, but at the same time it's only thanks to the working of difference that anything like presence is possible. Now it's true that hospitality, justice, and the other words in this series are internally divided in something like the same way that presence is. If hospitality, in the fullest sense of the word, were possible, it wouldn't look like anything like it wouldn't look anything like what we call hospitality in a friend or an institution, since it would be without any invitation, any restriction, any nomination. Similarly, a gift, worthy of the name, as Derrida liked to say, wouldn't even be apprehensible, as any consciousness of giving by either party Would render it imperfect. But our desire for presence is in fact the opposite of the movement towards hospitality, towards openness to the other. Its realization would not just result in something very different from the presence we dream of, but would mark the end of life, time, and space. Immortality, another mode of resistance to alterity, would produce the same result. We're saved from their terminal destructiveness only by the necessary interposition of the other. Derrida's normative terms, this chain that I've alluded to, it seems to me work differently. A desire for hospitality, whether as giver or receiver, doesn't, I think, really mean a desire for limited hospitality in the way that a desire for immortality could be said really to mean a desire for survival. A desire for justice isn't really a desire for law. Derrida's handling of these and similar concepts (coughs) suggests a different relation between the impossible, unconditional, unconditioned sense and the limited, law-governed sense. One version of that relation is ruled out by Derrida. The unconditional concept does not operate as a Kantian regulative idea. It doesn't stand as a remote ideal that as finite beings we can never hope to reach, but that we can imagine. Martin is very firm on this point, as is Derrida himself. Here is the latter discussing what he calls the impossible, with a hyphen in the middle, and this could apply to all the chain of terms that I've listed. It is not the inaccessible, and it is not what I can indefinitely defer. It announces itself. It precedes me, swoops down upon, and seizes me, here and now. It comes upon me from on high, in the form of an injunction that does not simply wait on the horizon, that I do not see coming, that never leaves me in peace, and never lets me put it off till later. Such an urgency cannot be idealized any more than the other as other can. The impossible is thus not a regulative idea or ideal. What then is our relation to unconditional hospitality? In his repeated attempts to answer this question, Derrida pushes at the limits of conceptual language in attempting to articulate what is strictly unthinkable and therefore not a concept. Quoting from Derrida now, to be hospitable is to let oneself be overtaken, to be ready to be not ready, if such is possible, (coughs) to let oneself be overtaken, to not even let oneself be overtaken, to be surprised precisely where one is not ready to receive, and not only not yet ready, but not ready, unprepared, in a mode that is not even that of the not yet. I'm interested in the way Derrida has to struggle there to articulate this, this idea. He also repeatedly asserts the inseparability of this absolute hospitality, however, from conditional hospitality and the insufficiency of the latter without its relation, however problematic, to the former. Just hospitality, he says, that's to say unconditional hospitality, breaks with hospitality by right, conditional hospitality, not that it condemns or is is opposed to it. And it can, on the contrary, set and maintain it in a perpetual progressive movement. Or again, conditional laws would cease to be laws of hospitality if they were not guided, given inspiration, given aspiration, required even by the law of unconditional hospitality. And one more, and I could have quoted many many others. Unconditional hospitality exceeds juridical, political, or economic calculation but no thing and no one happens or arrives without it. We have, therefore, two kinds of hospitality, heterogeneous yet indissociable, incompatible yet coupled, and the inevitably limited hospitality that we exercise or receive in our lives is in some way informed by, Derrida says set and maintained by, and guided and given inspiration by, the impossible, unthinkable, unconditional twin, The struggle to articulate the relationship between the two faces of hospitality indicates its resistance to thought, and it's not surprising that in extrapolations of Derrida's argument, the relationship often slips into the more easily understood structures of regulative idea or dialectical interchange. Deconstruction, writes Derrida, is hospitality to the other. Which version of hospitality is this? Clearly, it must be unconditional hospitality, there would be no deconstruction if it set limits to its openness in advance, if it knew who or what would arrive, if the event it brought about were in any way predictable. Of course, its absoluteness is immediately compromised. Impossible, pure deconstruction in its very openness to the other is potentially impure from the start. Similarly, justice, always a matter of singular judgments made in the context of general rules, is at once absolute and compromised by laws and rights, memory, and consciousness. And as Martin rightly insists, such openness can always lead to the worst as well as to the best. Now let's examine Martin's account of hospitality. For him, a hospitality worthy of the name, it would seem, isn't Derrida's unconditional hospitality, but a distinctly Conditional hospitality. (coughs) This is Martin. If I did not discriminate between what I welcome and do not welcome, what I find acceptable and unacceptable, it would mean that I had renounced all claims to be responsible, make judgments, or pursue any critical reflections at all. An ethics of unconditional hospitality would short-circuit all forms of decisions and be the same as a complete indifference before what happens. End of quote. Accordingly for Martin, unconditional hospitality exerts no ethical claims. Indeed, he asserts that Derrida deconstructs the ethics of unconditional hospitality on the model presumably of the deconstruction of presence. We recognize here the logic of the absolute as death exemplified in Derrida's Strathclyde comments. We may desire to exercise unconditional hospitality, but if we could, it would be disastrous. Fortunately, necessity The necessity of limits, rights, and so on prevents us from achieving this ultimate perfection. Martin's formulations make good sense, but they don't sound quite like Derrida's. They don't give the impression of grappling with an unthinkable relation. They don't struggle to articulate the necessary link between the unconditional and the conditional. Going back to the Strathclyde comments once again, we recall that Derrida's answer to color's question about the drive to deconstruct was an appeal to a combination of necessity and dream, the necessity of limits and laws and the dream of a plenitude that wouldn't be death. Even after the deadliness of plenitude has been exposed, there remains a dream that it might be otherwise. And even after the emptiness of immortality or the riskiness of hospitality had been made evident, the desire they provoke remains strong. Martin is insistent that Derrida's representations of justice, hospitality, the gift, have no ethical content. Unconditional co- hospitality may have terrible consequences as well as wonderful ones, which, which is quite, quite right. But Martin's careful arguments do have ethical implications. For instance, he explains the problematic indissociability of conditional and unconditional hospitality on the grounds that it is, I quote, the exposure, to, sorry, to begin the quote again, it is the exposure to the visitation of others that makes it necessary to establish conditions of hospitality, to regulate who is allowed to enter. The moral appears to be, be circumspect when you welcome a stranger, because the unruly force of unconditionality can always disrupt your careful plans. Similarly, because, I quote, a gift must be contaminated in order to be a gift, end of quote, any act of giving had better not strive for purity. The judge in her exercise of justice needs to be aware that, I quote, the risk of injustice is inscribed in the very possibility of justice, and of, quote, fortunately the law is there to function as, quote again, an immune protection for justice. Now this is perhaps to push Martin's argument further than he intends to go, but I do it in order to underline the difference between what I can only call the ethical tone of Derrida's writing and his own. We readers of Derrida ought to be grateful to Martin for being severe with us when we move too quickly to derive moral or religious prescriptions from the former's work, and that's not what I'm doing here. I'm concerned, however, to understand the difference between Derrida's wrestle with the notion of hospitality to the other and Martin's resolute and clear-cut anti-ethicism. In order to do do so, it will be helpful to turn briefly to Emmanuel Levinas. It's perhaps not much of an argument to say that if Martin is correct about the difference between Levinas's and Derrida's arguments, the latter's huge admiration for the former is rather hard to explain. One can assume a certain degree of exaggeration in comments of Derrida's such as, before a thought like Levinas's, I never have an objection. I am ready to subscribe to everything he says. That was in 1986. But there must be some basis for the clear indebtedness that, Le- that Derrida felt to Levinas' and for the frequent references to him when discussing concepts like hospitality and justice. This basis, I would argue, can be found in the power of Levinas's depiction of the ethics of alterity. There's no doubt about the considerable divergences between Levinas's and Derrida's understandings of what hospitality to the other implies. Nevertheless, the former's emphasis on an absolute openness to the other, an ethics that's not about prescriptions and moral codes, profoundly influenced Derrida's thought. His first long essay on Levinas, Violence and Metaphysics, was published very early in his career, one of the first substantial uh, works that he completed and published. For Levinas, my encounter with the other is not an encounter with an empirical individual whom I can identify and size up. It's prior to any of the processes of judgment or classification. The other is neither good nor bad, neither deserving nor undeserving. It's an embodied, singular source of a demand which is also an appeal. And I'm not invited to take responsibility for it. I find myself responsible. My subjectivity as an ethical agent, in fact, constituted by that responsibility. Part of Levinas's challenge to conventional ethics is his insistence that infinite responsibility is owed to the other without consideration of its goodness or badness, without forethought about likely consequences. Without, in fact, any thought at all, thought is, uh, comes after responsibility. Levinas does argue that everyday morality and politics gain by being informed by the ethics of the face-to-face encounter. To my mind, he doesn't succeed in explaining how this might work, much as Derrida has difficulty in explaining how his absolutes inspire their more limited partners. Derrida's non-ethical opening of ethics, then, isn't far removed from what Levinas calls ethics. For both, the encounter with the singular other is pre-prescriptive, and any prescriptions operative in the world are made possible by it. Levinas and Derrida both stress the passivity involved in absolute hospitality, but this doesn't mean that there's no value attached to absolute hospitality, as Martin seems to suggest. A purely calculated hospitality, Martin's discrimination between what I welcome and what I do not welcome wouldn't be hospitality at all. The decision to be hospitable must, like any decision, pass through the undecidable and hence take place beyond calculation. It is the other who decides, as Derrida liked to say. So normativity is indeed at work in Derrida's thinking. His choice of the word hospitality, like his choice of the words justice, forgiveness, and so on, isn't made in simple defiance, of their normative force. To exercise justice is to carry out the necessary calculations, to weigh and balance, and draw on legal and historical knowledge, but it's also to move beyond calculation in inventing the law afresh for a singular case, as Derrida argues in Force of Law. We find similar language in his discussion of unconditional hospitality. He refers to, I quote, a hospitality invented for the singularity of the new arrival. When Martin states that, I quote, nothing can establish a priori that it is better to be more hospitable than to be less hospitable, or vice versa, he's referring to the calculation of outcomes. And he's right. But ethics for Derrida, as for Levinas, isn't a matter of calculation. And there can be surely no doubt that hospitality, justice, forgiveness, (coughs) inventiveness, giving, are goods in an individual, in an institution, in a society, precisely because they involve risk, Because their relation to absolutes, difficult though that is to understand or articulate, makes possible actions that are not pre-programmed or secured in the self-same. Deconstruction's rapport with the other is described in somewhat different terms in Psyche, where Derrida relates invention to a deconstruction whose aim is, I quote, to offer a place for the other, to let the other come, and he continues... I'm careful to say let it come because if the other is precisely what is not invented, the initiative or deconstructive inventiveness can consist only in opening, uncloseting, destabilizing, foreclusionary structures so as to allow for the passage toward the other. And this, of course, is the exercise of hospitality, to, to open a place where the other may or may not arrive with good or bad results. Deconstruction as an activity can't make the other come, but can unsettle existing structures that inhibit its coming. In its openness to the other, it can always lead to evil consequences, as Martin reminds us. But Derrida's tone here and in a hundred other places indicates, I think, that this risk-taking, affirmative attitude is preferable to its opposite. Pure justice, absolute forgiveness, unconditional hospitality – All these are impossible and unthinkable, constitutively open to contamination from the first and without guarantee as to outcome. But without them, Derrida argues, there would be no justice, forgiveness, or hospitality of any kind. There would only be law, calculation, self-interest. Martin has shown superbly how Derrida's account of time underlies his explorations of these ethical topics and how unlike traditional ethical postures the results are. But what's missing from his account is Derrida's reinvention of ethics, a philosophical adventure that was not divorced, as many who knew him can testify, from his own practice of living. Thank you.
1: So um, let me also begin by... Uh, thanking Oxford University, and in particular the Faculty of English, for uh, sponsoring this event, Anki Mukherjee and uh, Sarah Singh for their efforts in organizing it, and uh, of course to Derek Attridge for his generous and challenging response to my work. Uh, it is a particularly precious gift to, for me to have my work engaged by Derek, whose work I have read and admired for many years. So. I'm also particularly excited about the frame that Derek has provided for this exchange since it opens for a critical discussion of the status of the other and the widespread notion of an ethics of alterity which have been central to theoretical developments in the humanities over the last two decades. In his own work, Derek has exercised a considerable vigilance with regard to these matters. As he points out in his important book, The Singularity of Literature, the other has become a rather overworked term in academic discourse. And to understand its significance for deconstruction, we must insist on its relational character. Nothing and no one is other in itself. It is only other by virtue of being other than something else, and hence always a matter of relationality. Consequently, Derek maintains that there is no absolute other, if this means a wholly transcendent other, and he goes goes on to argue that, quote, absolute alterity, insofar as it remains absolute, cannot be apprehended at all. There is, effectively, no such thing," quote. The logic of deconstruction thus undermines any attempt to promote a transcendent or ineffable other. To presume the stakes of this argument is one of the chief aims of radical atheism, as I argue against the piety of both religious and ethical readings of Derrida. What I would like to do tonight is therefore to elucidate the stakes of this intervention while gradually unpacking my reading of Hospitality, which is at the center of the debate that Derek opens with regard to my arguments. A good place to begin is Derrida's provocative assertion that the relation to the other is not characterized by a fundamental goodness or ethical imperative, but rather by what he describes as radical evil. The term was coined by Immanuel Kant, but it receives a quite different meaning in Derrida's work. Schematically, the notion of radical evil can be seen as an intervention in one of the most fundamental theological debates, which concerns the origin of evil. The classic theological problem is how the omnipotence of God can be compatible with the existence of evil. If God created evil, he's not absolutely good, but if he did not create evil, he's not almighty. Augustine formulated the most influential solution to this problem by arguing that evil does not belong to being as such. Only the good has being, and evil is nothing but the privation of goodness, a corruption that supervenes from the outside and does not affect the supreme good of being in itself. Thus God can be the creator of everything that is, since all that has being is good, without being responsible for evil. The source of evil rather resides in the free will of human beings, which make them liable to turn away from the good. Now Kant pursues a formally similar argument by treating evil as an effect of the free will, which may lead one to follow the incentives of one's sensuous nature rather than the moral law. Evil is thus radical for Kant in the sense that the possibility of evil is at the root of our human nature and cannot finally be eliminated from the way we are constituted. For Kant, however, the ever-present possibility of evil does not call into question the idea of a good that is exempt from evil. Even though we as finite beings can never attain something that is good in itself, we can strive toward it as an ideal that in principle is thinkable and desirable. In contrast, Derrida argues that the possibility of evil is intrinsic to the very good that we desire. Evil is thus radical for Derrida in the sense that it is at the root of the good as such. Without bearing the possibility of evil within itself, the good would not be what it is. Now, while this may seem like an abstract argument, Derrida makes it concrete through the notion of hospitality. For example, Derrida argues that when I invite a good friend and we have a great time, it is an irreducible condition that, quote, and this is Derrida, the experience might have been terrible. <laughs> not only that it might have been terrible, but the threat remains. That this good friend may become the devil, may be perverse. The perversity is not an accident which could once and all f- for all be excluded. The perversity is part of the experience. Unquote. Far from restricting this argument to the sphere of friendship, Derrida generalizes it in accordance with the logic of radical evil. As he puts it, quote, For an event, even a good event, to happen, the possibility of radical evil must remain inscribed as a possibility, since if we exclude the mere possibility of such a radical evil, and this is still there then there will be no event at all. When we are exposed to what is coming, even in the most generous intention of hospitality, we must not exclude the possibility that the one who is coming is coming to kill us, is a figure of evil, unquote. Accordingly, Derrida emphasizes that even the other who is identified as good may always become evil, and that this is true even in the most peaceful experiences of joy and happiness. The point is not only that evil is a necessary possibility, but also that nothing would be desirable without it, since it is intrinsic to the experience of the good itself. Following his example of a friend, Derrida maintains that when I experience something good, the coming of a friend, for example, if I'm happy with a good surprise, then in this experience of happiness, within it, the memory of or the lateral reference to the possible perversion of it must remain present, in the wings, let's say. Otherwise, I could not enjoy it. Unquote. This notion of radical evil is at the core of what I analyze as Derrida's radical atheism. According to Derrida, all religions are founded on the idea of something that would be good in itself, regardless of whether the good is posited as transcendent or imminent, and regardless of whether it is called God or something else. The common denominator for religions is thus that they promote absolute immunity as the supremely desirable. The good may be threatened from the outside by corruption, idolatry, misunderstanding, and so on, but in itself, it is immune from evil. Derrida's radical atheist argument is, on the contrary, that the good in itself is not a state of absolute immunity, but rather autoimmune. Even if all external threats are evaded, the good still bears the cause of its own destruction within itself. The vulnerability of the good is thus without limit, since the source of attack is also located within what is to be defended. As Derek recalls in his paper, I locate the deepest source of autoimmunity in the movement of survival that takes the time to live by postponing death. On the one hand, to survive is to retain the past, to keep it in resistance to loss. On the other hand, to survive is to live on in a future that separates itself from the past and opens it to being lost. No matter how much I try to protect my life, I can only do so by exposing it to a future that may erase it, but which also gives it a chance to live on. The movement of survival is thus autoimmune. Life bears the cause of its own destruction within itself, so the death that one defends against in the movement of survival is internal to the life that is defended. Now I argue that every moment of life is a matter of such survival since it depends on what Derrida calls the structure of the trace. The structure of the trace follows from the constitution of time, as Derrida also recalled, which makes it impossible for anything to be present in itself. Even on the most minimal level, for one moment to be succeeded by another moment, which is the minimal condition for there to be time, it cannot first be present in, in itself and then cease to be. Rather, every temporal moment ceases to be as soon as it comes to be, and must therefore be inscribed as a trace in order to be at all. The trace enables the moment to be retained, since it is characterized by the ability to remain in spite of temporal succession. So because every temporal moment ceases to be as soon as it comes to be, it must be inscribed as what Derrida calls a trace in order to be at all. The trace enables the moment to be retained since it is characterized by the ability to remain in spite of temporal succession. The trace is thus what allows the past to be related to the future and by the same token what allows life to resist death in a movement of survival. The trace can only live on however by being exposed to its possible erasure. The tracing of time is the minimal protection of life but it also binds life to death from the first inception since it breaches the integrity of any moment and makes everything susceptible to extinction. It is this irreducible dependence on and exposure to the tracing of time that Derrida calls the relation to the other. Accordingly, the other does not primarily designate another human being, but rather the tracing of time that makes it impossible for anything to be in itself and exposes everyone myself as well as any other, to corruption and death. Derrida's radical move is to think this exposure to alterity as unconditional, in the sense that it is conditioned for anything to happen. As he puts it in Rogues, without autoimmunity, with absolute immunity, nothing would ever happen. Following this autoimmune logic, Derrida argues that life must be open to death, that good must be open to evil, that peace must be open to violence, and so on. Inversely, an absolute life that is immune to death, an absolute goodness that is immune to evil, or an absolute peace that is immune to violence is for Derrida the same as an absolute death, an absolute evil, or an absolute violence. This is because an absolute immunity would have to close all openness to the other all openness to the unpredictable coming of time, and thereby close the opening of life itself. Accordingly, I argue that hospitality to otherness is unconditional, not because it is ideal or ethical as such, but because one is necessarily susceptible to unpredictable events. Even the most conditional hospitality is unconditionally hospitable to what may ruin it. When I open my door for someone else, I open myself to someone who can destroy my home or my life, regardless of what rules I try to enforce upon him or her or it. Derrida clarifies this by distinguishing between conditional hospitality as a matter of invitation and unconditional hospitality as a matter of visitation. No matter how many or how few I invite into my life, I cannot be immune from the visitation of others whom I have not invited and who exceed my control. Indeed, in a passage that Derek also quotes, Derrida underscores that nothing happens without the unconditional hospitality of visitation. Unconditional hospitality, on my reading, is thus another name for the exposure to temporal alterity, which opens me both to what I desire and what I fear. The exposure to visitation is intrinsic to the hospitality I desire, since no one can arrive and nothing can happen without the unpredictable coming of time. But by the same token, the hospitality I desire also opens the door to what I fear. Hospitality can never be reduced to the invitation of an other who is good, but must be open to the risk of an evil visitation. Even the other who is welcomed as peaceful may turn out to be an instigator of war, since the other may always change. This relation between invitation and visitation is, in my view, the key to answering the question that Derek focuses on in his paper, namely why Derrida says that unconditional hospitality is at once indissociable from and heterogeneous to conditional hospitality. On the one hand, I argue, unconditional hospitality is indissociable from conditional hospitality, since it is the exposure to the visitation of others that makes it necessary to establish conditions of hospitality to regulate who is allowed to enter. On the other hand, unconditional hospitality is heterogeneous to conditional hospitality since no regulation finally can master the exposure to the visitation of others. Even the most securely guarded borders may be transgressed or compromised from within. Otherwise there would be no need for protection in the first place. In effect, all limitations of hospitality are at the same time exposed to what they seek to exclude, haunted by those who, rightly or not, question the legitimacy of the determined restrictions. The relation between the conditional and the unconditional in Derrida's thinking can thus be described as an autoimmune relation. Inscribed within the condition for any hospitality is the unconditional tracing of time, that breaches the immunity of both the one who offers and the one who receives hospitality, opening them to the possibility of transformation or destruction, for better or for worse. The entire force of Derrida's analysis of hospitality, I argue, hinges on understanding the relation between the conditional and the unconditional in this precise sense. The relation, in my view, has been systematically misread, however, because of the assumption that the unconditional designates an ideal or an ethical demand rather than a necessary fact. Despite the nuances and sophistication of Derek's account, I would argue that he maintains a version of this misreading. Throughout his paper, he rightly holds that the unconditional and the conditional are heterogeneous, but it seems to me that he does not think through what it means that they are at the same time indissociable. Thus, in concluding the argument of his paper, Derek emphasizes that without unconditional hospitality, quote, there would only be law, calculation, self-interest, unquote. If this were the case, the unconditional would be dissociable from the conditional since we could have the conditional. We could have law, calculation, self-interest without the unconditional. Derrick's argument I would maintain is rather that there would be nothing conditional without the unconditional, We lay down laws and make calculations because we are unconditionally exposed to incalculable others. For the same reason, justice and the incalculable cannot be dissociated from law and calculation. Derrida explicitly emphasizes that our exposure to the incalculable requires us to calculate and that doing justice to a single other requires us to invent or transform the law. And it was this logic that, that Derek also elucidated in a different part of his paper. I would hold, however, that it is for this very reason that it is misleading to claim, as Derek does, that for Derrida, ethics is not a matter of calculation. As far as I can see, Derrida says that ethics is a matter of calculation. As Derrida puts it, quote, to be responsible in ethics and politics implies that we try to program, to anticipate, to define laws and rules, unquote. Derrida's point is that such calculation always takes place in relation to incalculable circumstances which entail the necessity of negotiating the calculation and the possibility of revising or rejecting it as unjust. Following this logic, we can thus account, it seems to me, for the passages that Derek quotes as a challenge to my reading, where Derrida claims that the conditional is guided and inspired as well as given meaning and practical rationality by the unconditional. The point on my reading is that there would be no need for conditional laws without the exposure to unpredictable events. Justice and hospitality cannot be reduced to a rule for how the law should be applied but are unconditionally exposed to singular events which there is no guarantee that the law will have anticipated. This unconditional exposure is both what gives practical rationality to conditional laws and what inspires one to defend or to challenge them depending on the situation. The unconditional, then, does not designate an ethical openness, but rather what Derrida calls the non-ethical opening of ethics. And I would insist on this difference between the ethical and the non-ethical opening of ethics um, as the heart of uh, the discussion between me and Derrida. The non-ethical opening of the relation to the other gives rise to every chance of progress and every threat of regress. Hence, alterity cannot answer to someone or something that one ought to welcome unconditionally. Rather, it precipitates affirmations and negations, confirmations and resistances that stem from the same exposition to undecidable events. Indeed, it is the undecidable future that necessitates decisions. One is always forced to confront temporal alterity and engage in decisions that only can be made from time to time, in accordance with essentially corruptible calculations. The ethical is therefore a matter of responding to alterity by making decisions and calculations, whereas the unconditional is the non-ethical opening of ethics, namely the exposure to an undecidable other that makes it necessary to to decide and calculate in the first place. Derek himself rightly argues that the ethical arises in responding to the other but he wants to align this ethical response with an unconditional hospitality that welcomes the other, quote, without consideration of its goodness or badness, without forethought about likely consequences, and consequently without, quote, any of the processes of judgment or classification, unquote. However, what would it mean to respond to another without determining any conditions, without making any judgments, without any concern for whether the other is good or bad, or what the other will do? Far from being ethical, it seems to me, such a response would not be a response at all since it would be completely indifferent to the other. This is why I argue that an ethics of unconditional hospitality, in the passage quoted by Derek, in requiring that I not respond in a negative or protective manner, but automatically welcome everything, would short circuit all forms of responses and amount to a complete indifference before what happens. It is true that Derrida maintains that we are bound to the other before any decision, but this passive exposure to the other is precisely not ethical. It is the non-ethical opening of ethics that demands a response in the form of conditions, calculations, decisions. To clarify the stakes of this, let us consider a passage from Derrida that Derrida quotes as an example of unconditional hospitality. Derrida here argues that to be hospitable is quote, to let oneself be overtaken, to be ready to be not ready. Unquote. In the same sentence, however, Derrida links the modality of being unprepared, of not being ready, to the susceptibility of being quote, violated and raped, stolen, precisely where one is not ready to receive. Unquote. This should surely make us pause. There is not saying that we should let ourselves be overtaken and remain unprepared for what happens. He's saying that such passive exposure to the other, such dependence on others who may turn out to violate us, is at work in everything we do, whatever we do, and that we need to take this into account to understand the exigencies of ethical decisions. What Derrida describes under the heading of unconditional hospitality is therefore, on my reading, the non-ethical opening of ethics. If we maintain, on the contrary, that unconditional hospitality has an ethical status as such, that there is an intrinsic ethical value in letting oneself be overtaken by the unexpected, we are at best, I would maintain, operating with a pious assumption that the other who will overtake us is good, and at worst, advocating an ethics of submission where the self should give itself over to the other even at the expense of being brutally violated or stolen, these being the terms that Derrida uses. Consequently, when I insist on the necessity of protection and calculation, I am not advocating a, quote, purely calculated hospitality or a morality that insists on suspecting strangers, this being the two charges Derek makes against my position. Rather, I seek to take into account that the openness to the other Is the source of every chance and every threat which is why openness may give rise to the most generous welcome as well as the most paranoid suspicion and why there can be no such thing as a purely calculated hospitality. The task of deconstructive analysis is not to choose between calculation and the incalculable but to articulate their co-implication and the autoimmunity that follows from it. It is not only that I cannot calculate what the other will do to me. I cannot finally calculate what my own decision will do to me. And in this sense, I am affected by it as by the decision of another. In pursuing this analysis of autoimmunity, however, deconstruction does not only give an account of necessity, but also of the dream beyond necessity, to quote the beautiful phrase from Derrida that Derek recalls. As I mentioned earlier, The religious version of a dream beyond necessity would be the dream of an absolute immunity, of a good that is immune from evil, a life that is immune from death, a peace that is immune from violence. Atheism has traditionally denied the existence of such an ideal without questioning that we desire and dream of it. In contrast, the radical atheism of deconstruction does not only deny the existence of absolute immunity, but also seeks to elude us today that that what we desire and dream of is itself inhabited by autoimmunity. Whatever I invite into my life, whatever I welcome or desire, opens me, as we have seen, to the visitation of another who can destroy my life and turn my dream into a nightmare. Yet without the possibility of such visitation, there would be no one to invite and nothing to desire. No one could come and nothing could happen since life only can live on through the exposure to a future that opens the chance of survival and the threat of termination in the same stroke. Furthermore, and this is the radical atheist argument, without the threat that is intrinsic to the chance, it would not be desirable in the first place. It is because things can be lost, because they have not always been and will not always be, that one cares about them. If things were fully present in themselves, if they were not haunted by the possibility of loss and alteration, there would be no reason to care about them since nothing could happen to them. Every dream and every desire is therefore informed by what Derrida describes as the unconditional affirmation of temporal finitude. This affirmation does not oblige one to accept whatever happens. It only marks the exposure to what happens as an unconditional condition of life. Whatever we do, we have always already said yes to the coming of the future, since without it, nothing could happen and nothing would be desirable. But for the same reason, every affirmation is essentially compromised and threatened by negation, since the coming of the future also entails all the threats to which one may want to say no. Indeed, the affirmation of temporal finitude is not only the source of all joy in life, but also the source of all suffering in life. The response to temporal finitude can therefore not be given in advance and may be resentful just as well as passionate. To reinvent ethics in the name of deconstruction, one must, in my view, reckon with this double bind. In order to do so, however, one must understand unconditional affirmation not as an ethical passivity but rather as a non-ethical opening of ethics that calls for our active response. Thank you.
0: But the the issue that you've clarified really well, I think, (coughs) is your sense of where agency enters the picture, where an ethics of choice, decision, action, can come in. You've painted for us a very clear account of the non-ethical opening of ethics, which then leads to action or decision on the part of the subject. So in various formulations you've said uh, unconditional hospitality or unconditional justice, leads to a situation in which we have to calculate constrain, limit, invoke the law, etc. That's presumably where something like ethics comes in in your account. Um, Now, I'm not convinced that Derrida ever spells out a neat progression from a a moment or event of uh, unconditional, whatever it might be, justice, hospitality, giving, forgiving, and then uh, a moment of of action or decision. Um, we might, for instance, think about there as a count of decision, which I think is a very compelling account uh, that we decide. If we ever do decide, and Derrida always has these parenthetical comments, if, you know, the gift if there is such a thing, absolute hospitality if there is such a thing. If we ever do decide, uh, as I quoted in my piece, it is the other who decides. A decision is not a calculation. A decision is, Derrida liked quoting Kierkegaard here, decision is a moment of madness. Um, a decision and this is something I'd like to hear Martin talk about, happens as an instant of madness. What what might an instant be in your account of temporality which wouldn't seem to allow for an instant? So I'm not convinced that the sequence is quite like that. It seems to me that uh, in his discussion of... Decision, Derrida almost reverses that. There is the process of, say, the judge of the law court um, using all the materials, and Derrida emphasizes that this is this is responsible behavior to draw to on the existing laws, on case law, on everything that can be calculated. But then if justice is to take place, the moment of decision is a moment of madness of something unconditional as he says swooping down into the into the realm of the condition up there and, and
1: look, yeah Martin yeah thank on. you so much i think that everything you delineated now really also ties up with how you frame your response namely it's just like how should we understand this seemingly very enigmatic formula of heterogeneity yet inseparability that that derrida is talking about and Let me first say, in terms of the logic and temporality of the decision, when I'm making the distinction between the non-ethical opening of ethics and an ethical decision, it's not a temporal distinction, it's a logical one. That is to say, they are precisely indissociable, so they're always both involved. Uh, But you, you need to have a logical distinction between the two to assess the argument. So in that way, it's not a matter of, I'm not describing a sort of progress from the non-ethical opening to the ethical. I'm trying to elucidate what it means that the violent non-ethical opening of ethics is at work in the lives of ethical beings that that we lead. And and therefore, it could also never be a matter of reversing it the way you seem to suggest that uh, instead we have this... um, realm of calculation and law that runs on, or calculation, self-interest, and so on, that then needs to be interrupted by the unconditional or by the madness of a decision. If that was the case, they would be heterogeneous, but they wouldn't be indissociable, it seems to me. So that's, um, and I was very grateful about the way that Derek framed this because I do elucidate this formula in the book, but really thinking it through for this response, made me see very clearly that the whole power of what Derrida is doing is what it means to think these things as in the sociable. So that it's not that he denigrates self-interest, calculation, law, and so on. He's trying to elucidate what it means that intrinsic to them is this unconditional exposure to alterity, to the unpredictable, and so on. Um, now that also ties up to the idea of the temporality of the decision. Um, and I t- towards the end, I was trying to sort of provide my reading of what means Derrida's notorious formula, that it's the other who decides, which sounds crazy. Uh, on my reading, it's precisely because, because a decision is a temporal event, because deciding takes time, I am affected by my own decision. This happens all the time. I've decided to let certain people into my life. And that decision I made, which I may not agree with anymore, continues to affect me all the time. Uh, And this is at work minimally, precisely because there is not an instant. This is at work from the beginning. From the moment I make a decision, I'm already affected by it, asked by the decision of another. So even if I never leave the realm of my narcissistic, self-interested relation, I'm already reckoning with the problem of um, otherness or alterity. And I would say, insofar as Derrida follows through on this logic, which um, is not anti-ethical, but is thinking the non-ethical or the pre-ethical opening of ethics, that's when his accounts become very, very powerful. And insofar as he slides into this different sense, trying to make the unconditional into something ethical itself. And I'm not saying that he never does that. what I'm saying is that the entire power of the account hinges on rejecting that reading and consistently following through on the non-ethical reading, not to reject ethics, but precisely to understand the complexities and exigencies of ethical life that there that can elucidate with that logic, but that is lost with the other one. Um, and just to add one final point to that, uh, or, unless you want to... Yeah, uh, It becomes very clear in in, in that passage I quote towards the end where Derrida talks about uh, uh, to be hospitable, which sounds very good and very nice, is, is to let someone in, but then he immediately in the same sentence says this is also the susceptibility, precisely because you're not ready to being violated, stole, raped, and so on. All these extremely disconcerting aspects of our lives as ethical beings. And this is something that, to me, really distinguishes the way Derrida addresses ethical questions. I mean, whether in analytical or continental philosophy, most moral debates are around this, you know, how much can I do for the other? What would I decide in this situation? So we have this sort of idea of the self then being responsible for the other. But there it also theorizes from the other side of the realm. What does it mean to think about ethics from the perspective of the one who is invaded, who is threatened, who is overtaken in a violent way? And if we don't thematize this in our understanding of ethics, um, we are not thinking through the difficulties. So, so that's why I would say analytically rather than exegetically so much hinges on severing these two possible readings um, that you get a more powerful account of uh, what is involved in ethical life than you get in the others.
0: Thanks. Um, I would like to pick up. Um, um, I was interested that you had a little qualification saying yeah. you were, I'm not saying that Derrida doesn't ever yep. say yep. this. So you are, and it's perfectly, yep. you, just, you, move, you are trying to winnow Derrida's prose in a way to say this Derrida is the Derrida of rigor and... Um, the non-ethical opening of ethics is clear and, and nothing is fudged. And then there's this other Derrida who is, what, a bit sentimental, a bit kind of um, given over, a bit too impressed by Levinas, is really what you're yeah. trying to say. But he shouldn't have been quite so much in Levinas' pocket. Um, obviously, that's problematic, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to to allow... I mean, we should be reading Derrida's Um You perhaps should... Be a bit more um, explicit about the fact that you're doing that. Yeah. But let's, um, well, maybe that's the answer to my, my other question, which would be about what I call the tone of Derrida's writing about ethics. Um, and again and again, he will write about unconditional hospitality as if it were in itself a good, a um, good, a work like The Gift of Death explores a notion of responsibility to the absolute other. And responsibility, which is a version of hospitality, in that work seems to be a good. Um, it's, it seems to be hugely problematic, impossible indeed, because, as you were stressing, if if I'm responsible to any particular other, I'm simultaneously failing in my responsibility to the uncountable others in the present and in the past and in the future. Uh, So it's impossible, but of course, for Derrida, the impossible can happen. Um, So are you going to say, well, Derrida slips into this tone, slips into the mistake of talking about hospitality? Perhaps he's being seduced by the very term, which seems to suggest something good. Uh, and that if he had been, if he'd stuck to his own logical guns, mm-hmm. he would have made it perfectly clear that responsibility to the other is not not either good or bad. It just it just happens. Is that is that what you would want to say? Uh,
1: a couple of things I would want to say. Thank you so much. That, that's very rich. And the first thing on the question of the exegetical versus the analytical, uh, I do say at the end of the introduction that well, insofar as one can find passages in Derrida that contradicts the logic of what I'm doing, that's not a sufficient objection no. to the book, precisely because while it is an exegetical, it's ultimately motivated by an analytical claim, namely this is how the logic should be understood, this is how the logic becomes powerful. So that would be one easy way of getting out of all of these questions. Uh, but I think it's a little more interesting uh, than this, actually. Um, and I was reminded even more about this uh, in preparing for this exchange and going through all of these passages in there, it are, uh, and actually finding less of them problematic than I used to because it's, I think a lot of the passages that sound as if they're stipulating an ideal or ethical and so on, once you understand the unconditional sense I'm doing, they, they actually make a lot of sense with the framework of the logic I'm pursuing. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting is Derrida always insisted on that a response, whether ethical, political, philosophical, is always situated. So his his tone, in your terms, will actually vary very much on where he is. It's a very interesting example of this in a text that I read just before coming here uh, called the Manifeste pour l'Hospitalité, where uh, it's actually a series of discussions in Paris. on hospitality and Derrida gets all these papers with people coming in and saying like yeah, we should welcome the other, hospitality is great. And like in all the q and he's like no, 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 it's really bad, it's really dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, um, so there is a way in which he will um, in certain places play up the negative, in certain other parts play up the positive but the logical or philosophical demand is always in my view to think through the co-implication uh, of the two. That is to say their heterogeneity yet in the sociability. So, um, so I, and I think it's, and that's why one always has to read, read the context of Derrida's claim. So you have this claim that you quoted about not being ready and then immediately you get these very disconcerting things about violation and rape and so on in the same sentence about the same experience. This also happens at the end of all hospitality which ends with this extremely disconcerting example of hospitality with, from Genesis with Lut and his two daughters who Uh, the father shows unconditional hospitality to his guests so he lets them in and since he's unconditionally committed to them when people bang on the door and want to rape and kill these men he says like you know you can have my daughters but you can't have these guests because I'm unconditionally hospitable to them I mean uh, and this is how Derrida ends the book and he just ends with the question are we heirs to this tradition of hospitality what does it mean to reckon with this so Derrida will always he always sounds, he can sound very nice and positive, but he also, parallelly, I think, when one starts looking closely, it's always playing out that our assumed sense of the positivity of these categories against these uh, disconcerting aspects or disconcerting examples. And it is to make that visible is one of the things I'm trying to do. And, um, as I mentioned, I mean, you, you, you've already, in other works, also qualified the sort of Levinasian understanding of the others. It's not like you sim- but I think that that understanding often makes those aspects. In-